0: Well, brothers and sisters, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Um, As we begin uh, this last lesson in our series, let us pray. Father, we are uh, grateful that you have brought us together this morning to continue our study over the Bible, racism, and social justice. We uh, know that you care of the justice that You have uh, created in this world out of your, your own justice, Lord. And we pray that through this study, You will be glorified as we seek to live as those who pursue justice in Christ for Your glory. So, Father, we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And uh, I'm going to grab something real quick here. We can continue. But uh, we've, over the last several lessons, gone through quite a bit in this brief study. Uh, After seeking to understand justice and injustice from God's Word, we continued to consider the rise of racism and the response or the reply of social justice and the social justice movement. But what has developed in social justice is uh, an ideological worldview, which is opposed to Christianity and must not corrupt our faith. That's why we heard from some popular voices promoting this worldview through critical race theory and intersectionality and advocating anti-racism. I also showed how Christians have mixed God's revealed truth with this worldly philosophy by redefining biblical words and categories. All of this has sadly deceived and confused many Christians. However, we should not let our concerns about this unbiblical worldview keep us from rightly responding to racism and injustice. As Scott David Allen writes in his book, Why Social Justice Is Not Biblical Justice, Let's not simply be anti-ideological social justice, let's be pro-biblical worldview. And while I don't share Alan's commitment to cultural transformationalism, he is right to encourage us to engage with the culture in a biblical worldview. But what does this look like for us? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I don't claim to know all the answers. As I mentioned when I began this study, I recognize that I have much more growing to do in my own understanding and working through these issues. So I don't see what I'll be offering today as a complete action plan. Rather, I am seeking to provide us with some next steps so that we can continue moving forward. And because the, the, the truth here is this lesson won't be the end of our study. But I hope that it will help us to glorify God by living more and more according to His Word as we keep studying and growing in grace. Therefore, I've come up with seven steps to help us live in the midst of racism by applying biblical principles in our response to racial injustices past and present. So the first step that I want to mention here this morning is to pray for Christ's kingdom to come. I've tried to emphasize that our hope is not found in this world, but in the world to come. This world is filled with sin and remains opposed to God, which is why injustice and oppression are tragic realities in this age. But our Savior has died and risen from the dead to establish a new kingdom of righteousness until he returns to fully and finally usher in his kingdom on the new heavens and a new earth. But until then, Christ is reigning in heaven as king. And through his gospel, God delivers us from the power of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And as citizens of his heavenly kingdom, we recognize that all injustice and oppression is temporary and will come to an end. But... This doesn't mean that we simply sit back and passively wait for Christ's return. What does Jesus teach his disciples to do? But pray. Pray. And at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, he tells them in Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this first petition or request is for God's name to be hallowed, that we ask God that that we will have reverence and respect for his name and for who he is. This is the chief purpose or end of mankind as God's image bearers glorify him and enjoy him forever. Yet in our sin, we fail to carry out this purpose, and so Christians pray for his glory to be restored in this world. But what's the very next request that we are called to make in this model prayer? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As you consider that petition or that request in the Lord's Prayer, this means four things. First, Christ's kingdom comes into this world. So His redeeming work not only redeems our souls, but it restores His creation. That's why He cares about what happens in this world, and He works to end all wickedness and corruption that has entered the world through sin. So His kingdom enters into this world through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the church. But second... We also recognize from this petition that Christ's kingdom has not yet fully come, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, His kingdom is not of this world, but this world is currently under the dominion of Satan, who is the God of this world. And what we are praying for is for this world to receive then the kingdom of God. But third, through this petition, we see that God is the one who brings the kingdom into this world. His kingdom does not come through our effort or our accomplishments, but through Christ's grace converting souls and changing lives. Which is why we pray to Him and look to Him for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, fourth in this petition... We see that the means through which Christ's kingdom comes into this world is the prayer of his people. And since we are completely dependent on God to bring his kingdom into this world, we pray for him to do it. And he graciously then uses our prayers to carry out his will and bring his kingdom into this world. You see then why we must never underestimate the importance of prayer. In the book of Revelation, When God's people undergo tribulation, including injustice, where do they turn? Listen to the symbolic vision of what takes place in heaven when Christ is worthy to open the scroll in Revelation 5, verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bulls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." Later, we read of the coming of God's judgment against sin through the seventh seal. And in Revelation 8, verses 3 to 4, listen to what happens. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand do you then see how God uses the prayers of his people to overcome the sin and injustice of the world? Yet all too often, little attention is focused on prayer today when Christians discuss social justice. We mistakenly place the injustices of this world on our shoulders rather than laying them before the throne of grace and prayer. But this should not be so. Of course, the Bible teaches us that we have more to do than pray, but prayer must remain primary and central. And I'm convinced that we too often and too quickly neglect prayer or even give up on prayer because we prefer to rely on ourselves rather than remain dependent upon God. You see, this world is far too sinful for us to change it. And our working to improve the world on our own is futile and will only lead to frustration. So let us bring social injustice to God in prayer, knowing that He is holy and righteous and just, and He will bring justice to this world either in this age or in the age to come. This brings us then to another step for us to consider this morning, to preach the hope of christ's kingdom since racism is the fruit of sinfulness the solution to racism is the gospel of jesus christ how are the various ethnic groups of the world reconciled according to scripture but through the cross of christ at the cross we are reconciled with god and we are reconciled with one another Again, let's remember the words from Ephesians 2 verses 14 to 16 about the division between Jew and Gentile. See, the different ethnic groups of the world are created in Christ, one new man. And we become one body in Christ. So this one body of Christ may have different colored skin or melanin levels in it. But it is this diversity which makes Christ beautiful and gives God glory. So here is a question for Christians concerned with social justice ask yourself do you care as much for the eternal destiny of their souls as you do the earthly pursuit of justice it'd be good for us all to probe our hearts is our primary concern their offense against god in sin and the punishment they deserve under his wrath in hell or is it improving their living conditions in this world Now, I recognize that our answer shouldn't be either or. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all. But this good will be of little help without addressing their need for salvation. I agree with John Piper when he famously said several years ago, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Else they have a defective heart or a flameless hell. This quote comes from a message that Piper preached at the 2010 Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization, and here's what he originally said in expanded form. One truth is that when the gospel takes root in our souls, it impels us out toward the alleviation of all unjust suffering in this age. That's what love does. The other truth is that when the gospel takes root in our souls, it awakens us to the horrible reality of eternal suffering in hell under the wrath of a just and omnipotent God, and it impels us to rescue the perishing and to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. He continues, I plead with you, don't choose between these two truths. Embrace them both. It doesn't mean we all spend our time in the same way, God forbid, but it means that we let the Bible define reality and define love. Could the evangelical church say we Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering? I hope we can say that. But if we feel resistant to saying especially eternal suffering, or if we feel resistant to saying we care about all suffering in this age, then we either have a defective view of hell or a defective heart. Now while Piper wasn't directly addressing today's social justice movement, his concern still applies. Among many Christians who pursue social justice, the proclamation of the gospel is not central in their efforts. Some even go so far as to question the adequacy of the gospel to bring racial justice in our world, since churches which have faithfully preached the gospel over the centuries were also racist or allowed racism in society. And this is sadly true. But it reveals how sinful humanity remains, even as followers of Christ who are being sanctified by his grace. It does not show us any inadequacy in the gospel. This world is not yet what it will be when Christ returns, when his salvation will be complete and all sin and corruption will be removed from the new heavens and the new earth forever. May this glorious future eternity with Christ fuel our efforts then to preach Christ so that his kingdom will come into this world through the conversion of souls in this age. This brings us then to another step to consider. Listen to our brothers and sisters in Christ as they speak of racial injustice. Now I began this series by appealing to James 1:19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And so in this verse we are given three commands to follow. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. May this continue to be our attitude towards our black brothers and sisters in Christ and other persons of color. But do you know what I've often seen among many Christians? On the right, there's distrust of our black brothers and sisters because they do not share our political views. There is a dismissal of all racial concerns as lies from critical race theory or cultural Marxism. So there's no discussion of racial issues today because it's all dismissed out of hand. And there's a distancing of ourselves further and further away from fellow believers for whom Christ died. But on the, right, on the left side, we also see the same thing. They express doubt or disagreement on claims of injustice, or when, excuse me, when we express doubt or disagreement on claims of injustice and oppression, they see it as demonstrating we're racists or supporting racism. If we oppose certain social justice policies and anti-racist beliefs and practices, they see us as an enemy that cannot be tolerated. And support for Donald Trump or other politically conservative candidates and causes is dismissed as not only wrong, but evil. Well, the result Has been a tragic fragmentation within the body of Christ in the parties. And so we have the woke and the anti woke, the social justice warrior and the conservative evangelical. And we have our own conferences, we have our own books, we have our own podcasts, we have our own ministries, and increasingly we have our separate churches. This follows the rest of our culture where we have our own news sources and where we follow our own like-minded friends on social media. We see this fragmentation even in where we live, where our children go to school, what we watch and listen to, and on and on I could go. What we see then in our society is that we are sifting apart relationally and even geographically as we surround ourselves with people who are like us. And this can lead to groupthink on the left and on the right, where we simply reinforce what we already believe. And those who are unlike us become more and more our opposition. But this is not how Christ has called his church to live. And so we are to love one another, whatever their skin color or political persuasion. How much time have you spent listening to the perspectives and concerns of our black brothers and sisters in Christ? I admit that I've been guilty of failing to listen. But in the midst of recent controversies over the past few years, I began to hear more about the black experience in America. And I heard personal testimonies of struggles from persons of color, which led me to start reading more and more about the history of racism in our country. And the more I listened the less I saw them as political opponents and the more I recognized them as fellow believers who were seeking to glorify Christ. Has this removed all of our differences or resolved all of my concerns? No, but I'm convinced that the key to overcoming this growing division between us is by listening to each other and by learning from one another. So here's my encouragement to you. Listen to other perspectives on racial issues. Do not spend all of your time reading, hearing from, watching, and following online your favorite political pundits and cultural commentators, but challenge yourself to try to understand the other side and seek to understand them well enough that you think you could make their case for them in a way they would agree with you and approve of. And if you'd like to know where to start, of course, let me know. I can point you to some resources which I have found helpful in my own journey so far. But additionally, let's learn more about the history of racism, both in our country and in the church. Your education may have been better than mine in school, but my knowledge of black history, slavery, The Jim Crow era, the civil rights movement, and more recent racial tensions was very poor. And how do I know? It's because I have learned more about our history in the last year of my studies than I had known in all of my life before. And I'm still no more than an infant who is learning the basics of the history of racism. Now, we could leave discussions of equality uh, or of the quality of our nation's education on history for another time, but the truth is that we are ignorant of far too much of the racism that has existed and continues to exist in our country and in our churches. And this is a history that we all need to reckon with as we learn from and learn from as we continue to work for racial reconciliation. So let me make a controversial recommendation. Read Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. Now, as you know, I am critical of Tisby, and he needs to be read with much discernment. He seems to have imbibed elements of the unbiblical worldview of critical race theory and intersectionality, and his retelling of the history is influenced by these commitments, which also leads to historical oversimplifications and problematic conclusions. I do not endorse or approve of Tisby's ministry. Why, then, would I recommend you read this book? First, because you will learn more about the history of racism Especially as it developed in American Christianity. And secondly, because you will be listening to a contemporary black perspective on race and racism, which is very common among our black brothers and sisters in Christ and other people of color. So while you may become uh, frustrated or struggle when reading this book, I also hope that it will help you to understand these issues in the debate over social justice today. We need to listen then to our brothers and sisters in Christ as they speak of racial injustice. This brings me to another step forward, to lament the sin and injustice in our world. Now, what is meant by lament? Well, Mark Virgop is helpful here. When he writes, simply stated, a lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Laments are more than merely the expression of sorrow. The goal of a lament is to recommit oneself to hoping in God, believing his promises, and a godly response to pain, suffering, and injustice. Lament is the historic biblical prayer language of Christians in pain. It's the voice of God's people while living in a broken world. Laments acknowledge the reality of pain while trusting in God's promises. Think of the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament, for an example. Here, the prophet Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction and death that came to God's people, Israel, when Jerusalem was destroyed under God's judgment. See, it is right and good for us to weep over the sin and injustice in our world, which is why we should lament racism. And this is why Vergap recently wrote the book, Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. I agree with Vergap when he explains the purpose of this book. He writes, I became convinced that lament as a biblical prayer language, can open a door for reconciliation. When Christians from majority and minority cultures learn to grieve together, they reaffirm their common bond as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lament enters into the deep emotions of sorrow, hurt, misunderstanding, and injustice. When it comes to racial reconciliation, I think we should approach the conversation as we would if a dear friend experienced a deep loss. Our first step should be to sit beside the grieving individual, love the person, listen, and lament with him or her. So in many ways, modern Christianity has lost the practice of lament, which is both unhealthy and unhelpful. And as I have grown in my awareness of racism in history and the tragic consequences of this sin today, I've personally found myself lamenting over how sinful and wicked this world is. May we recover then this practice as we weep with those who weep. This brings us to the next step to consider. Search your heart and repent of any racism. Now, I don't know your heart or if any of you are guilty of racism but as we have seen we can sin consciously or unconsciously with sins of commission and sins of omission but through my own study i have come to see unconscious biases in my attitudes and in my treatment of black men and women and so i have needed to confess these sins before god in repentance And if any of you become convicted in your conscience of the sin of racism, then you too need to lay your sins at the cross for forgiveness and cleansing. Let us then follow the prayer of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, as we ask God to show us any racial prejudice in our lives. This psalm, the prayer is, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So may we search our hearts in prayer and repent of any racism. But then we also model the kingdom in the church. It's another step to take forward. See, Christ church serves as the countercultural display of Christ's kingdom in this age. And whereas this world is full of sin and injustice, the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in righteousness and justice. So there may be racism and inequality in this world, but in Christ church, races are united together in one body with full equality among its members. And so we are joined together in the bonds of love, and we show how the gospel reconciles sinners with God and with one another. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 14. For as the body is one and has many members, but all members, all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many. Did you hear that? Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Now, this slavery was different than the chattel slavery of American history, which is condemned in the Bible as man-stealing. Still, we thank God that this wicked practice is behind us in our nation, and we're grateful to recognize that all ethnic peoples of all social standing are equal in Christ's church. So we could update Paul to say here today, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether black or white, whether oppressed or not, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. But tragically, the church has not always maintained such equality, but has allowed racism and the sin of partiality to compromise our gospel witness. Because we are not sinless. And this is frequently seen then. In our history. But at the same time, Christ continues to rule over us as He transforms us more and more into His image. And as we have already seen, what will one day be what we will one day look like as the Church of Christ in the book of Revelation? Let us listen again to Revelation seven, verses nine to twelve, this glorious picture of our future together in Christ. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the future picture of ethnic unity in Christ, which we want to preview in this age as His church. So may we pursue this diversity as a testimony to the universality of God's grace among all races. This brings us to the final step, then, of living in the midst of racism, to help this world as ambassadors of the kingdom. See, God has placed us in this world, at this time, in this nation, and our community for a purpose. We are ambassadors of Christ's kingdom, announcing its arrival and inviting others to join us under the love and protection of King Jesus. So I love this reminder from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We have a great summary of who we are in Christ. And as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom, we preach this gospel of reconciliation with God, which also reconciles us with one another. And we also serve as ambassadors through doing good works in love for our neighbors. Christ himself said that his church is called to be salt and light. Why? Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So it is through our good works that the world will see the truth of the gospel and glorify God. So we come back to our vital verse in Galatians 6.10. Where we read, therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there are three central truths for us to remember from this verse. First, recognize God's providence. Second, remedy others' problems. And third, remember the church's priority. Now, what does this look like in our lives as we seek to remedy racism in our world? Well, this depends upon the vocations which God has given us and the opportunities then we have. But in the body of Christ, we all have a part to play in Christ's ministry of racial reconciliation. So let us work together as we have opportunity to carry out our responsibility and to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Brothers and sisters. These are some practical steps that we can take to continue moving forward as those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. May we do so as we seek to live as the people that he has saved us to be. awkwardness i know um well that's a nine